This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Today's Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Prudential. What would you do if you had to choose between saving for your kid's college or your own retirement? With the cost of a four-year degree estimated to be over $200,000 in 18 years, it's a real decision many families must make. At Prudential, we want to make sure your biggest financial goals never have to come at the expense of one another. Because financial wellness means planning for their future and yours. Get started today at prudential.com slash plan for both. Prudential Insurance Company of America, Newark, New Jersey. Good morning. Jane Pauley is off today. I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Sunday Morning. Not to spoil your day, but a critical part of America's healthcare system is in critical condition. And far from the big cities with big name hospitals, countless small town residents are paying the price. Lee Cowan will report our cover story. You might think, given the high price of healthcare, that hospitals, even the ones way out in rural America, are doing just fine financially. I got 130 employees here that I'm going to have to tell they have no future. Well, think again. How much money do you have in the bank right now? 
About $7,000. Which gets you how far? The next 15 minutes. Rural hospitals are shutting down at a rate of about one a month. Could yours be next? Later on Sunday morning. Now serving in any number of American homes, recipes created by a woman who is a real trailblazer. Alina Cho has paid her a visit. I love recipes like this that are so easy to remember. Before Reed Drummond became one of America's top chefs, she thought she might work in TV news. You wanted to be Jane Pauley. <laughs> yes. I grew up with Jane Polly on my mom's kitchen television. I'm Ree Drummond. I live Instead, on you could say she found a better recipe for success. Okay, these are ready to come off. The Make pioneer sure. woman ahead on Sunday morning. Steve Hartman has a story of an accidental encounter. Jim Gaffigan admits he's addicted to the news. We remember the big dot-com bust and more all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. You might say that these days, the term critical condition doesn't just apply to the sickest of patients in a hospital. The words could also apply to a number of our small towns that suddenly have no hospital at all. Our cover story is reported by Lee Cowan. There's no such thing as the middle of nowhere. After all, every place is someplace. Tonopah, Nevada, however, is about as isolated a place as you can find. There's only one road in or out. Reno is more than 200 miles to the north, Las Vegas, 200 miles to the south, and not much in between. But to those who call it home, the scenic dot on the desert landscape once had everything they needed. Did you have any concerns about living in a place as remote as this? No, not really. It had a store and a gas station, and I was fine. <laughs> Emmy Marrow. That's her newborn daughter, Kinsley, on her chest, and that's her firstborn, two-and-a-half-year-old Elena next to her, has lived here for four years. Do you want me to read this one? Uh-huh. Okay. They moved here when her husband got a great job offer from the sheriff's department. But six weeks before she found out she was pregnant with Elena, she also found out Tonopah's struggling hospital, its only hospital, was shutting its doors for good. I'm frustrated, I'm mad, I cry, I'm upset about it because we would live less than a mile away from a hospital. You and me. It was all the more worrisome when shortly after she was born, Elena was diagnosed with Dravet syndrome, a catastrophic form of epilepsy. She's just like any other typical kid in our days, just like any other day, except for when she has seizures. Um, and how many does she have a day? She's at about 400 now. 400? Yeah. So is there anybody within a reasonable distance that can help? No. <laughs> when the seizures are bad enough, which is about every six weeks or so, she has to make a mad, desolate dash to the closest hospital, which is across the border in California, some 114 miles away. She'll never forget the first time she had to do it. 
it was in the middle of the night, so it was dark and I couldn't see her. So I did stop quite often to just check and make sure she was still breathing. That must have been terrifying. I was sobbing the whole way. It is the worst feeling in the world. Elaine Mingus lives here too. She came here with her husband, Kurt, for a high-paying job at the nearby solar energy plant. And they thought they'd retire here one day. We knew that there was a hospital here and there was a few physicians and uh, we felt comfortable at the time. But after the hospital closed, everything changed. And they shut the doors and that was it. And they didn't give you any warning? There was rumors. But no one thought they were real? No, no. We thought, no, that won't happen. That doesn't happen. Look, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Kurt, who had diabetes, tried not to think about it. Until one night, when he suddenly fell very ill. He woke up and I thought he was having a heart attack. He was gasping for air. He tried to get up, but he was just too sick. He was suffering a serious complication from diabetes. It's a condition that's normally survivable with prompt medical attention. But in this case, prompt meant getting a helicopter. And that particular night, the helicopter was 45 minutes out before they could get to the airport. And in that time, he, he went into cardiac arrest. Had the hospital here been open, would that have saved your husband? I would like to think so, yeah. It's a grim tale repeating itself all across the country. Since 2010, 99 rural hospitals, like that one in Tonopah, have closed. That's almost one a month. Basically about half of rural hospitals are losing money every year. It's, it's a large number. Mark Holmes has been studying the decline for more than a decade. He's a professor of health policy and management at the University of North Carolina. And is there an end in sight? So every time that I've said, I think we're through the worst of it, uh, we've been surprised. And, and you always have to wonder, who's next? The plug pulled on yet another Tennessee hospital. The area's only hospital is shutting down. Several hospitals are closing. It's devastating. A whole cross-section of America is now facing the very real risk they'll have no local hospital to turn to. Two hospitals closing for good. Leaving the causes are varied. The population in some of those towns has dwindled to a size that can't support a hospital anymore. In others, the hospitals are either mismanaged or they end up as table scraps and mega mergers. Medicaid expansion would have helped some stay open, Holmes says, but not all. And even so, reimbursement rates are often too low for hospitals to break even. Whatever the cause the impact on the community is almost always the same. The hospital closes, the emergency room dries up, all the other services that went with that, home health, pharmacy, um, hospice, EMS, they leave town as well, and now you're left with a medical desert. That's exactly the fate residents of Pauls Valley, Oklahoma, were worried about. The town about 60 miles south of Oklahoma City, has only one hospital. But the previous management company had run it into bankruptcy. I, I know. 
I know, and I know where you are. I know where you are too. So let me. The day we visited, the man the city through. brought in to save it, Frank Avignon, was working the phones to find a generous donor to keep it open. I got 130 employees here that I'm going to have to tell they have no future. It's literally day by day for this hospital. It's minute by minute. How much money do you have in the bank right now? About $7,000. Which gets you how far? The next 15 minutes. I mean, it, it's not enough to really make a difference. We all need the hospital because we've all... Townspeople rallied, especially those who had been treated here, like Suzanne Blake. How could we help? She and her husband pitched in half of their retirement savings. Half. A gamble that to them made some good-natured sense. <laughs> and we got tickled about how much we should give because he said, well, without a hospital, we don't have to worry about as long a retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Employees were just as passionate. Linda Rutledge, who's worked in the hospital's cafeteria for nearly 20 years, baked over a thousand cookies, a bake sale with a lot riding on it. What happens if the hospital closes? I'm gonna cry. That just can't happen. Those of you with numbers waiting for services in the line. This is what it can look like when it does happen. We're glad you're here. We're going to get everybody's services today. We're going to take very good care of you. This massive free health clinic popped up at a fairgrounds in Gray, Tennessee last year. It was set up by a nonprofit called Remote Area Medical, originally founded to serve third world countries. But Chris Hall, the charity's COO, says a rural hospital closure back in 1992 forced the organization to address the medical needs of the underserved here at home, too. Today alone, there's seven states worth of patients that have come to this event. Seven different states. So seven different states, people have gotten in their car, driven 200 miles to get here today just to be able to get a service that they couldn't get in their local area or afford in their local area. Some who lined up here overnight in the cold did in fact have a hospital. They just didn't have the insurance to access it. I'm Dr. DiMatteo. You are? I'm Leanna. But for others, like Leanna Steele, this is the closest they have to an emergency room. Her local hospital, which she used to go to when she had debilitating migraines, also closed. So what do you do? Um, mainly just sit hope. Usually, before a hospital closes entirely, administrators will try cutting back on non-emergency services like maternity wards. That's happened so often that more than half the rural communities in this country now no longer have labor and delivery units, leaving expectant mothers facing long drives at the worst of times. But in Lakin, Kansas, population 2200, they tried something different. Oh, hi. Yes, yeah, you she, don't. She has lungs. <laughs> and uses them. Yes. The only hospital for miles decided to invest in obstetric care instead. The thinking being that babies can be a growth industry. They get patients in the door. And just as Kearney County Hospital's young CEO Ben Anderson had hoped, they stay and they bring the rest of the family too. Moms came here and had a great experience and they said, you know, you're going to be my baby's pediatrician and you're going to be my women's health physician and you're going to take care of my husband as an internist. We're all coming to you. Baby's moving around in there. Yeah. Lots. Mm -hmm. And that's just what happened. Baby's being quite cooperative today. Dr. Drew Miller 
has a bulletin board outside his office with pictures of the future patients he's brought into this world, almost 500 in the last eight years from all across the state. That's the most rewarding thing of what I get to do is uh, take care of families of multiple generations. I could tell you stories of people I've delivered their babies and taking care of their grandma or the great grandma. That's what I love about what I get to do here. Oh, your nose looks angry. And another thing, there are no high-priced specialists employed here, not even an OBGYN. This hospital is staffed entirely by physicians trained in full-spectrum family medicine instead. We determined that we only have so many dollars to spend in a rural critical access hospital on medical staff coverage, so it's important that everyone's trained to do the same thing, and it's important that everyone's willing to do it equally. A typical day for these rural doctors can include doing a colonoscopy in the OR in the morning. Yep, let's get rid of it. And removing a skin lesion at a clinic in the afternoon. Are you going to hurt me? Well, <laughs> I'm try not to. It's a flexible, can-do approach to rural medicine that has kept these hospital doors open, at least for now. This last year, we had the first profitable year in probably two or three decades. But we're, we're riding very, very close. We don't have the margin for mistakes. Paul's Valley Regional Medical Center. It's that razor's edge that hospitals like the one back in Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, had ridden for too long. So um, we just left a meeting with City. We were there as that frantic CEO we met earlier, Frank Avignon. You can only live on borrowed time for so long. But brought the staff together know, to share some news. And we're going to Sorry. The hospital was closing immediately. I'm not sure people really understand what's going on. The story's got to get out. People have to see the faces of the folks in this community and the, and the employees and what they've been through. People die because this hospital won't be open. Tell me more. Oh. Emmy Merrill, back in Tonopah, Nevada, understands those risks firsthand after one excruciatingly long drive to a hospital with Elena that had irreversible consequences. She fell into a seizure that lasted three hours long. It lasted the whole entire trip, so she has brain damage from that. She wasn't breathing correctly. She lost oxygen. So I think people watching this are going to wonder if it's that bad and you're so far away from a hospital and you need, you know, help basically all the time, why not move? It would be great if we had the money to be able to move. We make enough to live, but not really enough to save up to be able to make that move. As for Elaine Mingus, with her husband now gone, the rural life they love so much is gone too. And like so many who live in small town America, she's at a loss for what to do next. Will you stay here knowing there's not a hospital? My home is here. I feel my, my husband here. Um, what do you think he'd want you to do? Would he want you to stay? No. Now serving in many a home on the range, breakfast recipes perfected by a true trailblazer. Alina Cho has been watching Re Drummond in action. 
It's 5 a.m., record heat. We gotta try to get everything done before it gets too hot. And Lad Drummond is up and at it. We run about 100,000 acres. His family's been herding cattle for four generations here in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, near Tulsa. By 9 a.m., the cowboys are starving. You're about to make some cowboys very, very happy. <laughs> Lad's wife, Ree, is armed with homemade breakfast burritos. I'll dig the hot ones out from the bottom. These are a little more toasty. It's actually a famous recipe. Hi, sweaty. I mean, sweetie. Give her a big hug. Oh, you know what? <laughs> because Ree Drummond is known to millions. Welcome to my frontier. As the pioneer woman her top-rated show on the Food Network. I wouldn't dream of making pancakes without a nice layer of butter first. I'm not a trained chef, and so I have a level of accessibility. I'm not going to show them anything that is beyond their skill. And also, I use a lot of ingredients that are pretty easy to get. I love recipes like this that are so easy to remember. And nothing fancy. Macaroni and cheese, sticky buns, and her signature. I've got some chicken fried steak already frying in a big skillet. It's really food that people want to eat, right? It's comfort food. It is, and the answer to that question is usually either butter or cream. You know, <laughs> why is this so good? I'm not a famous actress. I'm not the famous type. I really am a mom who cooked for her family. Who, as her fans know, isn't shy about her love of butter, basset hounds, and Ethel Merman. Yes, the legendary Broadway star. Had you heard of Ethel Merman? <laughs> I've never heard of Ethel Merman. I don't know what Ethel Merman really sounds like, but her impression of her sounds incredible. So we had to ask. I guess we are outside, so the sound never, has yeah. many places the cows, to go. The cows will never know. There's no business like show business like no business I know. <laughs> she doesn't do anything halfway. Are you, it's probably good to have a cooking show. <laughs> I'm Ree Drummond. I live on a ranch in the middle of nowhere, and all my Ree's life on the prairie is well documented. So when Lad is out herding cattle, or when she feeds the family. Her camera crew is there to catch it. Ree also wrote a best-selling memoir that reads like a Harlequin novel. So one night you're out at a local bar with some friends and boom. It truly was, for me, close to a lightning bolt. There was a lot of kissing. <laughs> you know, she, she started it. <laughs> truly, he just was different than anyone that I had ever been around before. Though they grew up just an hour away from each other, she took ballet and lived next to a golf course. You hadn't been on a horse, had you? Maybe twice, you know, on a trail ride. She calls him the Marlboro Man. You know she was a vegetarian when you met her. Right. I mean, that could have been a deal breaker. It would have been. 
It probably would have been, because there's just no way we could have survived 25 years with her not eating any steak. Fact is, you could say this all began with a recipe for steak, which reposted on her Pioneer Woman blog in 2007. And what was the feedback that you got? Post another one. What are you going to post next? Her recipes became so popular, she wrote a cookbook. Actually, five all New York Times bestsellers. There's a Pioneer Woman magazine, Home Goods at Walmart. I am involved in every single dot and flower that appears on a cup. <laughs> and then there's this, the transformation of tiny paw huska, population 3,500, into a bona fide tourist destination. There are lines around the block. It's the chicken fried steak. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> Actually, it is her. Ree and Lad own a prosperous chunk of downtown. Here, you can sleep like Ree in the hotel suites she and Lad designed, or eat like Ree in their pizzeria, or in their huge mercantile restaurant. I told Ree two weeks before we opened, I said we might have lost our mind. I don't know if anybody's coming to Pahuska. But thousands do. I picked every product in this store. Unbelievable. <laughs> I was a little obsessed. With a little luck, you may also meet Ree. Give me a hug. What's your name? Diana. Thank you for your service. My dad's a Vietnam vet. Do y'all want to take a picture? Hi. Come over here. <laughs> I'm going to start browning some beef. Reed Drummond may never get a Michelin star, but this pioneer woman has blazed her own trail with a pinch of luck, loads of butter, and a healthy serving of determination. She says that every great idea she's had has come from you. Well, no, she's, she's way too smart for that. You detest the word empire. Oh, gosh, yes. But it is what you have. I don't know, I just think of the word empire as being in a position where you can just sit and reflect on everything you've done. And I'll get three or four griddles going at once, and I just don't have time to do that. And I'll keep going until they're all done. I've got too much to do today. I've got it on medium-low, which is usually the best temperature. As Joyce Kilmer might have written, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as an olive tree. But as Seth Doan tells us, if you want to see the pride of Puglia, you'd better hurry. In this part of Italy, olive trees don't just dot the landscape, they define it. They're so important here in Puglia, in the heel of Italy's boot, that locals use words like patrimony and cultural heritage when describing them. I'm in the oil business, <laughs> but not the Texas oil business. I'm in the real oil business. Here, that's olive oil. It's turned Paul Capelli into a farmer. To go out and plow the fields, cut the grass. It's not green acres from uh, the 60s or the 70s, but it's kind of like that. He'd been an advertising executive in New York City until a few years ago. When he left his job and moved to this home on the ancient Appian Way, surrounded by olive trees. So it's very grassy. Today, Villa Capelli produces about 10,000 liters of olive oil, 95% of it sold in the U.S. It's a drink from true. 
with the nightmare behind me. That's what it feels like, a nightmare? Yeah, it feels like I'm, I'm always looking over my shoulder. This is what his nightmare looks like. A disease that's killing olive trees by the millions. Just a few hours drive south in a part of Puglia called Salento. I heard you call this a olive tree cemetery. Yes, cemetery or just in few cases, last stage hospital. Pierre Federico Lanotte is an Italian government scientist who's trying to stop the spread of this disease called Silella fastidiosa. The European Commission considers the plant bacteria one of the most dangerous in the world. It's carried from tree to tree by a little bug. Oil from an infected tree is still safe to consume, but the tree soon dries up and is no longer able to produce olives. This epidemic has the potential, if uh, we couldn't stop it in time, to destroy completely the olive oil industry of this region. More than a third of America's olive oil comes from Italy, and Puglia produces about 40% of all of Italy's oil. Of the roughly 60 million olive trees in Puglia, an estimated 10 million are already infected, including some of the oldest. Uh, this uh, is 1,500 uh, years old. 1,500-year-old tree? Yes. Now it's almost completely dead. Lenote blames globalization for spreading the pathogen, which was likely carried to Italy from Central America only about five years ago. That was the first time Silella was detected in Europe. What went wrong? Farmers, government, scientists? A little bit of uh, every factor that you mentioned. The research moved uh, immediately, but a lot of people couldn't believe at the beginning that uh, so dangerous uh, disease could uh, appear and move so quickly on the territory. Today, they're taking drastic measures. The government is testing trees and destroying the sick ones chopping them down by the thousands and burning the leaves to try to stop the spread of the disease. It hurts my heart, Ottavio Vincenzi told us. My grandparents raised and cared for these trees. I can't even look at them anymore. This 75-year-old former olive farmer abandoned his trees, nearly 700 of them, his life's work. There's not life, there's no work, there's nothing, he told us. So these are two specimens of Philanus pumarius. This is that previously harmless bug that's spreading the pathogen. Scientists, including Maria Saponari in the regional capital of Bari, are trying to understand the disease and how it spread. Here we uh, inoculated the, uh, the plants with the bacterium. You uh, put the we put the bacterium in here there. to to have to infect the plants and then to observe the, the reaction of the plants in the next uh, months. But Saponari explained in greenhouse conditions the incubation period of the disease can be about a year. So a tree can be infected and yes. it visually won't appear yes, infected. Exactly. And you could even test an infected tree, and if it's too early in the incubation period, you wouldn't know. Yes, yes. We are trying to save the old trunk, but at the same time to verify and to look for new resistant uh, varieties. Back in the field, her colleague, Pierre Federico Lenote, is trying to graft disease-resistant olive varieties onto infected trunks. This seems to be doing well? Yes, it's, uh, it's growing very well. To try to save some trees. 
you say trying to stop this is a race against time. Yes. Is it a race that you're losing? Oh, uh, at the moment I, I have to say yes. Now you see uh, this yeah. and you say, was that from frost or was, or was that the beginning of the end? Paul Capelli has tested his trees and there's no sign of Silella, not yet. It's like the black death is coming. That's what it feels like? Yeah, it feels like, you know, if I look over my shoulder and I see dark clouds, it's the bubonic plague coming towards the town. Olive trees, a way of life in southern Italy in a fight for survival. Steve Hartman this morning has the story of an accidental encounter. In Buffalo, New York, Canisius College senior Andrew Sipowitz has a tale to tell that is truly unique. A heartwarming story about a hit and run. Yeah, he says it all began the day he discovered this dent in his Ford Mustang. It was, it was bashing him pretty good. And then you saw the note. Then I saw the note. I wasn't expecting that at all. That it came from a sixth grader. Obviously, 11-year-old Zaira Griffin didn't make the dent, but she did make it better with the note she tucked under his windshield. It read, if you're wondering what happened to your car, bus 449 hit your car. It stops here every day to drop me off. She hit and run. Sorry. Zaira closed with a sketch of the getaway vehicle. That's her in the back, aghast at what she'd just witnessed. As a result of her artistry and honesty, the bus driver was held accountable, and Andrew is now getting his car fixed. I couldn't act like it didn't happen, but I, I chose to do something about it. Because my mom always said, when you see somebody doing the wrong thing, you have to be the right, you have to do the right thing. But her mom, Takara, refuses to take all the credit. In fact, Takara admits she wasn't exactly supportive when her daughter started going all Dudley Do-Right that day. You're thinking, I want to get out of here. Yes, I don't want to anyone to think it was me. I think that's why sometimes people don't say anything because it's easier to just walk away. My daughter taught me how to stay kind, stay compassionate, always knowing the right thing is always the right thing. Hi. Andrew says Zaira taught him that as well. I'm Andrew. Which is why he just had to meet her. I couldn't believe you left me that note. When I first saw my car, I was angry and then I saw your note and it changed my entire, entire mood. To know that there's people out there with the type of integrity and honesty. It's something I'm going to remember for, for the rest of my life. So, yes. Again, her mom credits nature over nurture, but she is clearly doing something right. Very grateful. Because raising kids who stand up to injustice <laughs> Thank you guys so much. is no accident. You're welcome. Now, our Jim Gaffigan with the latest news. I have a confession. I'm addicted to the news. Breaking news. Jared Kushner's security Nasty plan. Weather continues to travel. The Mueller report. New information on the Cohen story. I'm admitting I have a problem. That's the first step to recovery, right? I often pass out with the TV blaring and my phone in my hand mid-article. Yeah, as a kid, I hated the news. Volume on the New York Stock I didn't understand why my parents would watch it. The news was the opposite of interesting. Leftist leader Kamal Jumblatt was buried today and It sounded like someone was reading a textbook. And that's the way it is. Now, y'all killing me with this The news is the only thing that interests me. Don't tell me about your favorite show. You know, your show is boring. 
It's inconsequential. My show, the news is the best. The characters are so complex. The storylines are filled with surprises and the acting is flawless. We have been talking about the national emergency on this broadcast for 20 damn years. The heroes and the villains are replenished every day. Every night is a cliffhanger. Robert Mueller may be ready to submit his findings. Sometimes I try to rationalize my news addiction. I'll tell myself, I'm trying to be an informed citizen, but I love the drama. He is a racist. The mystery. Mueller is not expected to. Is there any other footage of Robert Mueller than this? What do Kellyanne and George Conway talk about at night? I know what my wife and I talk about at night, the news. Saturdays are when I realize the gravity of my news addiction. Saturdays used to be my favorite day of the week. Now, ugh, I hate Saturday. Crack, crack away. There's no good news on Saturday. Even my cable news dealers are forced to air non-news filler programs on Saturday. Well, the inside is completely dry. I just wait for Sunday. On Sunday, there are the all-important Sunday news shows. So the border recall, wall is... I almost expect every show to begin with previously on the news. Sunday news shows are like the talking dead for us news zombies. Will you run against President Trump either as a Republican in the primary? But most importantly, Sunday news shows mean tomorrow is Monday, which means 24 hours of news. I can't wait for Monday. What happened to my life? <sighs> Our journey into the woods takes us to a clearing and a beautifully crafted paper trail our Barry Peterson has discovered. In our world of speed, step back into the world of slow. The world of Grey Zeit, who started Larkspur Printing Press more than 40 years ago down a rural Kentucky road. The slow begins when authors, including some of the finest poets from Kentucky, understand it may take a while to get their books printed. Why do they come? You know you're going to wait a year and a half. Sometimes maybe it's two years. It's because of the quality of the work. The love of this work goes directly from heart to hand. I love it. I love it. The work here, you can use your hands. You have to use your mind. It's the total package. The type is set by hand, one letter at a time. The 1915 press is fed by hand, one sheet at a time. Then sewing the pages together and the binding of the first editions of three to five hundred, all done by hand. And finally, quality control is the touch of a hand. When you stop and pause for a minute right. and hold this in your hand, how does that feel? It feels wonderful. It's just like creating a new piece of art. And as art is how it's sold at Ellen Glasgow's gallery in nearby Frankfurt, where Zeit's books sell for $20 to $40 and special editions go 
were up to $150. The paper is so sensual that that is something that you really want to touch and you really want to turn the pages. And then the type is so beautiful. These are poems for every day of Lent. And while Zeit is one of the last people in America still earning a living from making books by hand, a new generation is learning the ancient craft at the American Academy of Bookbinding in Telluride, Colorado, one of only two such schools in the U.S. So the same amount of leather coming over on this side as this side. Kay Sable quit her IT office job in order to hone a skill full time, a skill that can take years to master. How much time do you think you will have put into just this one book? Probably easily 100 hours. 100 hours? Easily. What kind of prices would you ask, considering the amount of work that goes into these? Over $1,000 a book. Mm -hmm. And it'll be worth it. And like Larkspur Press, for Kay, it's personal. I notice that when you talk about this book, you keep almost stroking it. <laughs> Why is that? Because I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. What else can I make that will last 500 years? Back at Larkspur Press, Gray Zeitz truly believes his work making a book will change what happens when a reader opens the book. I think that if you read a book that's carefully made mm -hmm. and well-designed, you're able to get more out of it than reading a book that is just mass-produced. When you're looking at beauty, that helps the understanding of things. I'm Mo Rocca. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.